The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. All right, Paul, Hannah, we've done it. We we just recorded with our, our great friend, Dr. Avitalo Glasser. This is the Curbsiders. This is another perioperative medicine episode. Here we're really focusing on post-op care, a little bit on post-op complications. Paul, before we get too far, can you tell the audience, what do we do on this show? Happy to. As per usual, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews from your clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And you, of course, are quite familiar with our expert today. And we do spend a little time up front giving some picks of the week. I mean, we are still in pandemic world. I feel like it's it's important to hang out as colleagues a little bit before we, we get right down to it. Right. This whole new Zoom medium is really blowing my mind. It's exciting to have a chance to do this differently. And with us is the soon-to-be Dr. Hannah R. Abrams. Hannah, can we call you doctor yet? Definitely not. Okay. Definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Hannah, of course, <laughs> famous for being on Twitter, uh, CP Solvers, multiple other podcasts, and media mogul, <laughs> master clinician. Yeah. Uh, as you'll hear at the end, uh, with bad timing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is an amazing episode. We covered different types of co-management arrangements, updates for kind of common post-op issues, and of course, we covered the famous W's of post-op fever with our expert, Dr. Avi Oglasser. Yeah, Hannah, tell them tell them about Avi and then we'll get on to the show. Yeah, so Dr. Avi Oglasser is an associate professor and assistant IM program director for social media and scholarship at Oregon Health Sciences University, where she's the medical director of the preoperative medicine clinic. At CashLec, she's our chief of perioperative medicine. Beyond pre-op medicine, she's interested in medical education, social media, and the use of social media to promote community and learning amongst medical trainees. So she brings all of those perspectives to the show today, and we learned a ton. Avi, thank you so much for joining us. The, we should we should make the disclaimer to the audience that there's there's some kids that are potential time bombs that could burst in on me oh. and Avi. Paul's cats might make an appearance. Actually, I can see one of Paul's cats right now. Is that Oliver? <laughs> That's Ollie, and he's the noisy one, yeah. <laughs> I don't think my dog will make an appearance. She tends to be on the quiet side anyway. Okay. The people might show up Ooh, to uh, to cut the grass in my neighborhood, although I've asked them to stay away from my house uh, till a little later. But anyway, we're going to push through. We're going to do this. Avi, you want to remind the audience uh, just a one-liner about yourself. Maybe tell them about a hobby, just in case they haven't heard your prior episodes. Sure. I'm I'm still a 38-year-old <laughs> hospitalist. So I'm like, when did we last record? Yeah. Um, hospitalist specializing in perioperative medicine in Portland, Oregon, um, out here on the left coast. I'm the mom of two young, uh, currently schooling at home boys. Um, we're not homeschooling. They, unfortunately, are having access to their teachers. Uh, I'm married to my husband, uh, who's a lawyer, and we're approaching our 15th wedding anniversary and oh, hobbies, boy, that's gotten to shake up in the last month or so. Um, I really do genuinely love jigsaw puzzles. Uh, they did make an appearance in my residency and uh, personal statement way back when. <laughs> oh, oh <laughs> no, wait, they, wait, wait. Let me guess. I really like putting puzzles together, and that's the appeal of internal medicine. It's the intersection <laughs> of solving puzzles and working with other people. 
Is that something like that? Like, something like that. Yeah. But they've actually been a really good uh, <laughs> release, um, distract my brain in other ways, uh, given the last several busy weeks. With or without a glass of wine? I Just, just curious. <laughs> you know, it depends. Okay. I try to do them with my kids. We, we stick to the thousand piece range, so they, they take some concentration. Well, I think uh, seeing as this is, we're in the middle of the pandemic here, I feel like it's good to get some picks of the week out there. We could do so quickly. Paul, did you want to start us off? I, you're usually the you're usually the first person to go. I am shocked that we're doing this. I'm unprepared. I'm going to go. Um, I happened to watch the Sidney Lumet, I want to say 1957 movie, uh, 12 Angry Men, just this week. I'm trying to remediate my classics, and I haven't seen that one. And it, it is spectacular. It's a classic for a reason. The performances are amazing. If you haven't seen it, there, there's a remake in 1997, I want to say. That came out with Jack Lemmon. Um, I could be making all this up, by the way. But in any case, it's it's a movie about, um, I think, sort of implicit bias, which we've talked about before, and how it impacts decision-making and sort of more broadly about the justice system and and, and what that means uh, to the people who are sort of being processed through it. And it's really a lot of remarkable performances, um, beautifully shot in black and white, and just just a great classic movie. So if you're if you're in the mood to, to get all worked up about uh, criminal justice and just justice in general, um, a few good, not a few good men, Lord Almighty, 12 Angry Men. A few good men's also very good, so go ahead and watch that as a double feature. The Rob Reiner classic. All right. Avi, anything that you wanted to recommend? I do, yeah. Um when I when I haven't been concentrating as intensely on certain work projects, I've actually been listening to um, Neil Patrick Harris's Hedwig and the Angry Itch soundtrack for last week. Um, we saw a production of it at a local theater company back in January that was just hands down um, fantastic. So Hedwig and the Angry Itch is a it's a basically a two person rock opera that sets um, or the, the the main character Hedwig is like an escapee from Eastern Germany who is able to transition um, from male to female through, through that escape from the other side of the Berlin Wall. But it's just a fantastic soundtrack. Neil Patrick Harris um, does, a, does a wonderful job. It's got some great songs. Uh, if you Google like his Tony performance, like you'll get a sense of what it's like. But that's been on shuffle and, and repeat for the last week. Hannah, any pick of the week that you wanted to share? Yeah, it's such a funny coincidence. I also saw a small artistic production of Hedwig and the Angry Inch uh, in January in Portland. What a, what a coincidence. <laughs> um, I have a bit of a professional one, which is PCSS Now is offering free BUP training specifically for med students. And it's completely online and it's completely free to get your X waiver. Uh, and so I'm like halfway through that. Uh, you can do it online at your own pace. And at the end, you get an X waiver for free. So any med student should check it out. And I will uh, I will not give a specific pick of the week. I'll just say about Hannah's pick of the week. I think prescribing buprenorphine has been one of the more professionally uh, rewarding things that I've done in the past like couple years. I would say t- just being able to openly discuss and prescribe something for opioid use disorder has really uh, been a a very positive practice changing thing that's happened in my time as a hospitalist. So definitely get your X waiver if you don't have it yet. And And it's equally a joy in outpatient practice too. So if you have ongoing suboxone clinics or it's, it's also a a professional high point. Yeah. And it's been on my list of things to do too. So I'm not doing primary care. um, And our, this came up in our last episode, our path, our, our protocols are now continuing people on their suboxone going into surgery 
But, and this has come up in some of your other episodes, sometimes switching from a once daily dose to a TID split dose for the analgesic effect yeah. can be very, can be beneficial. And um, sometimes it's hard to get the, the prescriber on the line to be able to make that change in a short period of time. And I've really given more consideration lately to just finally getting my X waiver to help drive patient care forward in that manner. Yeah. And I know we're not going to touch on post-op pain too much on this episode, but the it's it's a much cleaner it's a much cleaner situation for the patient if you either put them on four times a day bup or three times a day bup. You can give full agonist opioids like uh, hydromorphone or morphine, whatever, on top of it. And then the patient doesn't have to go through a withdrawal period because mm-hmm. if you stop the bup before their their operation, they have to go through a withdrawal period when they're coming off the the perioperative hydromorphone, mm-hmm. which is not really patient centered in my opinion. Agree. So let's uh, let's start the case. We've kind of w- w- uh, found ourselves in the midst of talking about perioperative medicine, which is the focus of the show. Hannah, did you want to start us off with a case and? And we'll go through it. Absolutely, Sure. So it is a beautiful Wednesday morning at Cashlack Memorial Hospital. And you arrive to to a page from the orthopedic surgery service regarding Miss Perry operative. She's a 67-year-old woman who's now post-op day one from total hip arthroplasty. She has a medical history of type 2 diabetes that's well controlled on metformin, AFib, on warfarin as an outpatient, but held for surgery. She had a brief run of AFib with RVR overnight on tele, but she's currently hemodynamically stable and afebrile. The ortho service is requesting a transfer for during the rest of her inpatient stay. So Avi, can you give us kind of a broad overview of what the options are for adding medicine to a patient care team? Yeah, this is a great question. And, and this is probably a very common situation at um, in a cash lack or any of its affiliate hospitals. So I want to start with some definitions. So they've requested a transfer. And, and I, I, my understanding is the title of this episode will be transfer from surgery or transfer to medicine. So what do we think about transfer? And I really think of that as a, as a physicality or, you know, transferring wards, transferring locations, transferring primary services. Um, but probably the better way to think of this, um, the options for this patient and what's what will be her future care setup is the difference between consults and co-management. Um, I think in internal medicine, we're very commonly on the, the requesting ends of consult. We consult surgery, we, we consult nephrology, we consult cardiology. Um, but as the hospitalist movement has grown over the last couple of decades, medicine has become, been on the receiving end of consultation and not just pre-op, you know, can I get a pre-op clearance and I'm doing air quotes, consult, but can you help follow along or answer a specific question that pertains to an internal medicine knowledge basis for this patient. But in that case, the primary service, so like orthopedic or another surgical service, would retain primary responsibility for the patient. Co-management, though, is really a more shared decision-making model. Um, Usually, and and hopefully, this is in the construct of a very robust written agreement between two service lines, really outlines who is responsible for what, who owns, what part of a patient's care, and usually is a, an agreement that maybe starts on at the time of admission. So somebody comes through the emergency room or gets directly admitted, and it's very clear what this shared responsibility model is from the beginning. Um, so they've asked for a transfer, but I think it's good to take that step back and determine what are they really asking for and what's in this, this patient's best interest. I think 
I think what happens here, you get a lot of, this is like the classic turf war that I always just think like one of the main things I took away from House of God is that the turf war was happening back then and it's still happening today. And just at some point you have to do what's the right thing for the patient and just take ownership of your piece of the patient's care. And with with co-management, it's often, to me, that often implies that I may be putting in orders for my piece mm-hmm. of the care versus yeah. as a consultant. Usually as a consultant, you don't put in any orders uh, for, for the patient's care, at least in most places I've worked. Yeah. So for people who maybe don't have as much experience with that relationship, what are kind of some of the expert questions or the things that someone who might have one of those relationships should always ask of the surgical team to figure out what's been going on in the OR, what they need to know for these surgical patients? Personally, I think it's really good to stop. Like when you get one of these consults, you get one of these pages to take that deep breath and say, clarify, what are you asking me for? Like, why are you bringing me or asking me to be involved in this patient's care? Um, Just lay that foundation. And um, maybe your hospital or maybe your hospital's group has an existing co-management relationship. And this is the structure is in place. Even a patient who maybe you think is doing really well, is stable, is on the healthy side, why am I getting? Why am I being asked to get involved in their care? But you have an existing co-management structure. That's good to ground yourself with. But if you don't have an existing co-management agreement and you're being asked to, to consult or transfer, stopping and, and clarifying the question. Um, we all get into trouble when we make when we make assumptions. Say, why are you asking me um, to p- participate in this patient's care and in a non-antagonistic way? So shift it to what value are you hoping that I add? What are you worried about for this patient? Um, I think approaching this with more humility, or that this is a this is coming from a place of humility from the surgeon's ends, that they are acknowledging their limitations of their skill set and recognizing your skill set and seeking out your contributions um, and be a really good way to center yourself when you're taking these requests. So back to that, what are you worried about? That's a good way to, to center yourself on the what happened, um, what clinical events have, have raised your threshold for concern, what's been going on in this patient's care. Depending on where you are in that patient's care, are you being consulted immediately in the PACU? Is it post-op day one, like early in the morning on post-op day one? As you mentioned for this patient, I think that'll help um, help generate more of your questions and sort of go down the line of um, some of the hypothesis testing. So let's, right. let's be concrete. Yeah. So let's say we, we got the unfortunately named Ms. Operative. She is post-op day one. <laughs> We, we're accepting a transfer of care. And so now we're, we're sort of shifting responsibilities. We are now the primary caretakers of this patient and orthopedic surgery are, are managing a sort of in a consultant capacity. Mm-hmm. What, what, what specific questions do we have about, about this patient? She's had this run of AFib with RVR. Mm-hmm. What, you know, so other than sort of what general things that we can help them with the management with, what, what questions are helpful for us in managing this patient in the post-operative setting? So I think go back to the beginning to so make sure that you've got an accurate past medical history. You're, you're taking a sign out. Um, you've gotten a blurb about what underlying medical conditions she has. I don't think you need to ask them to regurgitate or repeat the preoperative assessment. Maybe she came through a pre-op clinic. Um, I would ask, how was the intra-op course? Um, was anything eventful or non-eventful? And I'd be careful with those definitions because... You might hear, oh, she was hemodynamically stable through the case, but it took a couple of doses. <laughs> sure. It took a couple of doses of pressors to keep her hemodynamically stable. Yeah. 
Um, it's like protecting or, one's airway. It just, it's, I just don't trust that as a sentence in general. <laughs> <laughs> or you might hear there was uh, bleeding was normal, but uh, so she had a, she had a, a joint replacement, but um, if she'd had a major scoliosis surgery, normal bleeding might be two or three liters. So um, don't let sort of, Gestalt catchphrases like it, uh, she, it was, she was stable in the OR, it was uneventful, it was an expected course, because maybe the expected course is rocky. So I would ask for granular details. I would know where to look in your electronic health record or, or paper record, where the intraop data is going to be, like in um, Cashlack Northwest EHR, the anesthesia, the intraoperative anesthesia documentation is very easy to find, but you have to know where to look for it. Yeah. Um, where to look for the drug tallies, where to look for the EB, estimated blood loss, where to look for fluids. Stuff might not appear on the MAR, like the traditional MAR on the electronic health, electronic health record, but everything's there. Interoperative events um, may not be in a progress note, but they might be in the record where you know to look for them, where, if you know where to look for them. Um, I would ask about events in the PACU. And based on what the surgeons are doing when the patient is in the PACU, you might need to turn more towards the nursing notes or the anesthesia notes to see what happened in the PACU. Um, and then I would say, you know, in the context of this brief run of AFib RVR overnight, um, what other data could you give me? Just as if you had a learner on your medicine war team and you were told that the overnight events included a run of AFib RVR, you would push um, in, a, in, a, in a Socratic uh, growth mindset, learner-centric way, you would push for more information. Avi, I, I wanted to point out that when you get transfers like this from surgery, in my experience, you're often getting the call from someone who was not in the OR. It might be the intern or the advanced practitioner that's working, managing the, the patients on the, on the med surge floor. And so often they don't know the specifics and this is not a knock. It's just, just the way it is. They just, they, they do not know the specifics of what happened interoperatively. And when you, like, if they're calling you for a patient with acute kidney injury or hypotension or tachycardia, when you look at the op note, you might say, oh yeah, their systolic was 150 pre-op. And then it went down into the eighties immediately in the Mm -hmm. operation. They were getting phenylephrine. The estimated blood loss was a thousand and um, you can really learn a lot from that. So I, I do think it's, it's always worth it looking at the op note because it can, it can really, uh, reset things based on the information that you may have gotten from the person who calls the consult. Cause there's just a big disconnect between, and, and it's rare that you will discuss the case with anesthesia unless mm-hmm. you're seeing them in the PACU and anesthesia is there, but anesthesia yes. is just like, they're, they do their thing in the OR and they very rarely come in contact with us as internists. Yeah, I think that's that's just the the nature of how we all carry out our roles. It's not a bad thing. It's just it's an is. Um, I think absolutely read the full op note. Depending on your Cashlack affiliate local regulations, um, there may be a very brief op note that's dropped in the chart within minutes to hours of the operation completing, but they need to dictate or type a, a, a full operative note. I would strongly encourage you to keep an eye out for that and read it. It may look like a boilerplated, like every knee replacement looks identical, but look for stuff that stands out as different or unique to that patient. Because sometimes you can glean a lot of information um, from that. Okay. So to recap, we're, we're going to be skeptical of the information we got, not just because we, we know that they're the person that giving, calling the consult probably was not in the OR. So we'll read the anesthesia record and the op note when it's available. I wanted to ask you, Avi, 
can you comment a little bit on things like when I was when I was prepping for this? I, I something I had never thought about is that the anticoagulants may be given in the OR or nausea and vomiting medications may be given in the OR. Is that something that um, you had wanted to make any sort of comments on, like medications that would that medications or interventions other than events in the OR that would be given that we need to pay attention to? Oh, that's a great point. I think this is also a good example of, of the, the trust but verify adage is, is do your homework. Um, maybe even if you're figuring out if the patient should be a consult or a transfer or co-management, maybe like really spend some time looking at the chart and even seeing the patient to triage that final decision. But yes, absolutely look at the, the meds that are administered perioperatively. And again, depending on your EHR, they may not look, they may not appear on the regular MAR tab in the chart. They may be in the intra-op documentation. Um, Cashlack Northwest is a very, very easy to read drug tally that appears at the end of the intra-op records. Um, so if, you, if you're worried that a patient may not have, they're hypotensive and they're on chronic steroids and you don't see that they got stress dose steroids, it may be in the intraoperative meds and they did get it. Or you're wondering why a patient is delirious and you want to know, well, they got anesthesia. Well, go see what they actually got. Um, and maybe they got um, permethazine or maybe they got ondansetron or maybe they got something that has some anticholinergic or centrally acting properties. So don't make assumptions. Well, they got anesthesia. Did they get general? Did they get regional? Did they have a neuraxial anesthesia for this case and got propofol? Or did they get dexmedetomidine, which is getting a lot of attention for maybe being um, better for risk of delirium? Thank you for all of that. That's super helpful to think about. I think going back to for a second to just the routine stuff, not necessarily the delirium and all of that, but the routine post-op care, let's say the next day you're going through this patient's order sets and you see docusate in their order set. So we have a couple kind of rapid fire update questions that we have for you on how to manage routine inpatient care for these post-op patients. So starting out, yeah, docusate, what, what should we be doing for bowel regimen for these patients? I would say unless it's a patient who's had uh, intra-abdominal surgery, I think the hospitalist can completely own the bowel regimen. I think if you see docusate or a senadocusate combo, I think you can take it off and not anticipate any grief about it. And if there's grief, then use it as a teachable moment. Because um, I'm not channeling any other prior curbsiders episode on that pearl. Um, but somebody who's had intra-abdominal surgery or has had a Whipple or a bowel resection, I would really make sure that you're talking to the surgeon about uh, the, the package to promote return of bowel function, as we call it. So avoid constipation, avoid ileus, maybe help with nausea, vomiting. But for an orthopedic patient, I would feel completely comfortable owning the bowel regimen. Awesome. How about kind of pain and delirium management? I know that's a huge topic, but any big picture pearls? I'm going to separate them out just a little bit. Um, I think we don't give our surgical colleagues enough credit for, for being very familiar with the nuances of, of pain control. A lot of the literature on minimizing opioids postoperatively, um, minimizing the risk of chronic uh, tolerance, uh, chronic dependence on opioids post-op has come out of the surgical literature. So I think patients, surgeons have really stepped up to the plate recently to think about how can we minimize opioids after surgery? What are our non-narcotic options? Uh, if you are concerned 
a patient might be getting very large doses or inappropriate large doses, I think that's a really good reach across the aisle. We also know that uncontrolled pain can be a delirium trigger as much as overtreated pain. Um, I would also say this is a really good example of seeking out that teachable moment yourself. What is the anticipated pain going mm-hmm. to be from this operation? I think, we, I think we sometimes get on our high horse about, oh my gosh, they're getting so many narcotics. But some surgeries are really, really painful. Um, and this comes into the patient education component as well. What is the first day supposed to be like? What is the second day supposed to be like? What is maybe post-op day seven supposed to be like? And when can I anticipate a drop-off in analgesic requirements? Um, but rather, I would say before you start changing the pain med orders, that's a conversation. Uh, and maybe it's with the surgeon. Maybe they have an APP who's embedded on the ward to help with post-op care. But also, again, teachable moments. If you see that they don't have scheduled acetaminophen on their order set, uh, I, don't, I don't see the harm in, in just putting on like TID, a thousand of acetaminophen, but that's another, hey, I'm going to do this, wanted to let you know, I think it will help. But there's mixed data on uh, the benefit of gabapentinoids. Um, we, I think, are getting more and more comfortable with topical analgesia, like lidocaine patches or diclofenac. But if that's going to be close to an incision or bandages or a wound vac, I would make sure that that is being safely prescribed or the surgeon might say, please don't put that anywhere near the wounds. Hmm. I've seen that uh, a couple things in response to what you said. I've seen the IV acetaminophen is somehow unlocked for surgical patients uh, in in places that I've worked, which is which is nice because it does seem to to work pretty well. Uh, whether or not that's the placebo of it being IV versus PL, I'm not sure. But it, that and and I think that I've seen a lot of just standardized. These are there's a multimodality standard r- regimen that is given to all post op patients, and usually it's including acetaminophen, NSAIDs if there's no contraindication, even muscle relaxants, gabapentinoids, mm-hmm. as you said. And I do see it's nice that those are opioid sparing, but then you also get this polypharmacy of yeah. Right. You know, based on the patient's underlying cognitive status and any other meds that they may be taking for mood disorders or what have you, it, you might start to get uh, delirium. They might be de- delirium, pr- uh, you know, promoting meds. So yeah. I've kind of, it, it is a balance. And again, it's, you may be surprised how much you learn in that process. We, th- I think we automatically think you've got to hold your NSAIDs for more time than you actually need to before your surgery. But some surgeons actually really like the NSAIDs postoperatively. The bleeding risk is not a concern um, or is not prohibitive. Uh, you get an anti-inflammatory effect. I think when we talk about post-op fever, you'll understand that I mean, there is an inflammatory response to surgery. You have local tissue trauma just from the nature of having an incision. And NSAIDs might be a valuable adjunct but again, this is, this is a two-way street. Let's say you are seeing an 80-year-old patient with you know, stage three or age-related renal dysfunction, and there's NSAIDs on the MARD. You might want to say, hey, I just, I'm worried about this patient's renal function post-op. Can we avoid the NSAIDs for them? So the theme is here really making it a conversation. Can we touch? I know I realize that delirium is a, a whole show unto itself, but in terms of post-op delirium um, specifically, just as I was preparing for this, I thought that, so first of all, there's never the wrong time to, to recommend people review the 2017 New England Journal Clinical Practice um, article on delirium, mm-hmm. which is spectacular. But then also, I think one of the recommendations in there is actually proactively consulting geriatrics 
if you have a patient who's at high risk for post-op delirium, is that something that you see with any regularity? And are there I, any other things that you can do to help sort of stave off post-op delirium? I think that's a great example of the importance of being proactive versus reactive. And I've, I've shared that mantra in the preoperative setting before, that if you can anticipate the potential complications, you're much more empowered to try to prevent them then have to respond to them once they set in. And I think that's absolutely true for, for delirium, that we know that delirium is easier to prevent than it is to treat once it occurs. And a multimodal, multidisciplinary strategy um, can really have a huge benefit. Uh, some hospitals, so some cash lack affiliates might have a co-management agreement with geriatrics rather than hospital medicine, depending on the patient population. Um, I've certainly at, at Cashlack Northwest Pre-Op Clinic recommended a post-op day zero geriatrics consult rather than a medicine consult based on what I think might be the patient's highest risk of, of, of experiencing post-operatively. Certainly if a patient has a personal history of post-operative delirium, I strongly encourage the multidisciplinary approach starting out of the OR. And the, um, it's the, oh my gosh, I'm totally forgetting the name of the society, but hopefully it'll go in the show notes. There's a, uh, you mentioned a delirium article. There's another, there's a position statement out of the anesthesia and surgical realm that just came out recently on preventing and managing post-op delirium. And it has a very, very uh, strong focus on the preventative nature. Avi, before we leave pain and delirium, uh, I, I know Paul is a huge fan of the cannabinoids, and we'd be, oh, sure. we'd be remiss <laughs> if we Speaking didn't. Speaking of delirium, if we didn't mention, yeah. uh, are, are is there any is the post op or the perioperative literature commenting on cannabinoids yet? Is that are they being used? Not necessarily you used for post op analgesia um, that I've seen, but the perioperative literature regarding marijuana. Uh, and cannabinoids in and of itself is expanding because more and more patients are presenting to the pre-op setting using these medications, especially with the, the expanded legalization of recreational marijuana. Um, so there was an article from last November looking at complication, post-op complications in the setting of marijuana use. Um, but one of the things that can happen, especially with, with heavy habitual use, so I think we're talking daily significant consumption, is you can get withdrawal from cannabinoids, um, which can create a, a delirium appearing state, especially agitation, restlessness, tachycardia, um, insomnia, mental status changes. So I don't know that any, there's any good data to prescribe, especially in the inpatient setting when you're restricted to, uh, what, to what controlled medications you can prescribe. Um, somebody going home or something having day surgery, I don't think there's good data to say, yes, you can resume your cannabinoids when you get home. That I think that could potentially be dangerous. But uh, I would actually say have marijuana withdrawal on your differential for post-op delirium. Interesting. So if the patient, you ask the patient, what's your favorite movie? And they say Half-Baked or Cheech and Chong, <laughs> <laughs> then we might might consider that. Well, let's move on. There's one, okay. the there's one post-op. good social history. <laughs> right, sure. Um, there's one small study, I think it was like 20 patients, that, that they, they looked at post-operative uh, cannabis for uh, acute post-op pain, which was not, there was no placebo arm. Like, I, I would love to know exactly how this trial worked. I'm not, I should probably actually check and find out where it happened to. But yeah, I don't think the evidence is, is super compelling for All it. All right. Well, one can hope, Paul, maybe for the future. <laughs> I think it's a good lesson. You know, get your social history and just like alcohol withdrawal, 
should be on your differential for a patient who's manifesting changes post-op. I think we need to have, have cannabis or marijuana withdrawal on there too. Well, let's move on to some of the more, some of the other rapid fire topics that we wanted to go through. We took a digression there, but that I think it was worthwhile. Glucose management, what, what are the targets we're looking for and any, any specific medications you want people to, to look out for either restarting or holding? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think of the, the data that's come out of really the critical care setting on what our inpatient goals should be. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth in the literature about what the pre-op A1C or the pre-op glucose control does in terms of risk of post-op infections or post-op complications. But in general, I like to think of aiming for appropriate inpatient glucose targets. Hypoglycemia can be dangerous. I'm not trying to control someone as tightly as I would be in the primary care setting, but I also want to make sure we're avoiding hyperglycemia that might increase the risk of, 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 of infection or poor wound healing or other post-op complications. So I think you need to be cautious with insulin doses just as you would be if someone was admitted, you know, comes into medicine for pneumonia or a primary medicine admission. I think in medicine, we tend to hold the oral hypoglycemics. Um, do we need to be holding metformin? Do we need to be holding sulfonylureas in the hospital? I think it depends on who you ask. I'm, I'm personally more comfortable continuing metformin because you get that glucose tolerance benefit. I'm, I am cautious with the sulfonylureas in the hospital because there's plenty of reasons for people to miss a meal or get hypoglycemic with the med on board. We talked about this in the last episode, but the SGLT2 inhibitors carry a risk of euglycemic DKA, and that's becoming increasingly recognized. There was another article that came out more recently, and I'm blanking on it, uh, where it was. We're recognizing the risk of euglycemic DKA and recommending holding for several days before surgery. And I, I do put in my consult notes, avoid rapid resumption of the SGLT2 inhibitors until the patient is really reliably taking normal PO. So most of the case reports of complications of sulfonylureas were in the setting of bariatric surgery or GI surgery where volume status and intake is dramatically different post-op. So somebody might be nauseous or somebody might be delirious and not eating and drinking well after a non-GI surgery, I think it's reasonable to hold for a day or two. I don't think it's going to dramatically worsen their overall glycemic control. And I think the, the risk benefit is in favor of skipping a couple doses. How about kind of other home meds? So let's say she was on an ACE inhibitor. Yeah, the ACE is a great question. Um, there's certainly been a lot in the perioperative literature about ACEs. Narbs, I'm very much personally in the hold on day of surgery for the, for the ACEs and ARBs. Article in Journal of Hospital Medicine, one of the more recent ones, one of the true uh, small but actual RCTs about the matter, uh, I think we discussed this on the last episode too, had like an equal number needed to treat, number needed to harm for um, causing post-op hypertension and causing post-op hypotension. So the ACEs, I think, are a good example of if their the volume status is stable, if their renal function is stable, consider resuming as early as post-op day one my personal practice would be don't immediately order it, like don't reconcile all the home meds. But on post-op day one, I would look at the blood pressure trend. If they're really running hypertensive above their baseline or above goal and their renal function is stable, I would add it back and make sure they get it with morning med pass. If they're running 
hypotensive relative to baseline, maybe they've had a small bump or any bump in their creatinine, I would continue to hold it and do a day-by-day assessment. Any other home medications that you think we should comment on? Uh, I would comment on uh, let's see, other antihypertensives. Uh, as long as someone is not hypotensive or bradycardic, I would continue their beta blocker as tolerated. I think this is a good reason to, that medicine might want to be involved. Um, do you, if someone's on a metope sucks 100, rather than it be an all or nothing, is, is that a decision that could be made to half a dose? For a day. So there's beta blocker on board, but you're not ris- risking hypotension or, or symptomatic bradycardia. Uh, calcium channel blockers, I would continue unless they are really hypotensive. Diuretics is a good question. I mean, fluid balance can be challenging perioperatively. Um, if somebody's on maintenance fluids, I would certainly look at the total clinical picture before I consider stopping them and resuming a diuretic. Um, I think some, we have all probably seen the, oh, I gave them a dose of diuretic because their urine output was low, but what, what was the cause of their urine output being low? But I would be careful about holding the diuretics for too many days because you might suddenly get into a decompensated heart failure picture. I think that's another good reason to have a day-by-day assessment. Really make sure you're looking at the I's and O's as charted and as charted intraoperatively. Doing a volume status exam, patients might third space after surgery, just from the inflammatory response um, and the fluid given intraoperatively, but this is this is where the internist comes in. Make sure you're seeing that JVP as yeah. you're making these med med titrations or med I, adjustments. Kind of going off of that, are there any things that we need to think about in terms of fluid status and fluid management related to wound healing for these post-op patients? Um, I think if someone was really edematous or developing anasarca for whatever clinical reason that I would be worried about integrity of incision healing. Um, But I would be careful about diuretics just for anasarca, especially if they were clearly intravascularly depleted. Mm. And this is why I would put on my, my hospitalist or my internist thinking cap and make sure that I'm appropriately evaluating why they're edematous. Um, or why they might be manifesting anasarca. Is it, do they need more nutritional support? Is this someone who has underlying liver disease and is now decompensating? Um, there is some data in the literature, especially for intra-abdominal surgeries, in the setting of patients with cirrhosis, that poorly controlled ascites can comp- um, compromise abdominal wound healing. Um, so you've got increasing ascites, it's putting pre- it, causing abdominal dissension, it's putting pressure on the wound, you might be leaking ascites fluid through an, a brand new incision, and that's never going to heal, and it may risk dehissing. Or if you've got a JP drain in, you, I, I've, I've seen patients at Cashlack Northwest who have basically been getting large volume paracentesis through their JP drains um, after an abdominal surgery. And then manifest an acute kidney injury and they're losing tons of albumin. So I think, I think of those sort of incisions and do I need to resume diuretics cautiously? Um, but in terms of extremities or other locations, I don't know of anything in the literature. So, and just so we stay on brand for post-operative <laughs> nausea, are we, are we waving um, alcohol wipes underneath their nose or do you have any other recommendations for that that we should be? That is such a cool possibility, this data about alcohol um, as an anti-emetic. Um, there are ways to triage uh, or estimate a patient's risk of what we call PONV, post-op nausea vomiting. And PONV can be miserable 
Um, the last thing you want to be doing is waking up from anesthesia and, and puking your guts out. Uh, I think the risk factors are um, uh, women, um, history of such, and intra-abdominal surgery. Um, so I do ask that of my patients in, in our, in our pre-op consults. Uh, our anesthesia colleagues can be very, are very proactive with, with preventative measures. Again, this is another easier to prevent than to treat. Um, so they may get ondansetron or promethazine or um, dexamethasone as part of the sort of the cocktail of, of pre-anesthetic agents, another good reason to look at the MAR and see what they've received. But the data that uh, isopropyl alcohol, the odor of that can be a potent and very rapidly acting antiemetic is kind of intriguing. It seems low risk to take out a swab and hold it under someone's sure. nose. Um, I think there's some limited data on, on the role of like acupressure, acu, uh, acupuncture. Um, some anesthesia groups actually have a, uh, someone who's been trained in acupuncture and they can do acupuncture points oh, before right. the, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the data. Like, I think there's a Cochrane review that doesn't show great effect, but yeah, I just, um, I just found that on a quick search The there's a Cochrane review on aroma alcohol. They call it aromatherapy yeah. and it's from March, 20, yeah. 2018. We can link to it. And yeah, this, this thing that I saw, there's multiple types of like wristbands that, that you wear that kind of put pressure and supposedly those are FDA approved. At least one of them is FDA approved. I had never heard of it. I was excited, you know, like that kind of stuff is exciting, but I, I just can't imagine like how, to, how that actually works, but the, the I've, aromatherapy. I've seen, makes... I've seen, I get, as some of the Cashlock affiliate hospitals, I've seen anesthesiologists who are certified to provide acupuncture. There's a point, uh, it's called. I have no idea how I know this, um, but probably because I Googled it. Yes, I Googled it yesterday. <laughs> it's called pericardium six. It's like thing, three finger breasts proximal up the left forearm from like where the carpals start, where your carpals start. Yeah. Um, this is why I'm not in orthopedic surgery. Uh, but sort of inner left wrist is, a, is an acupressure point. Yes, that's where, nausea. yeah, if you Google a search, uh, this band, or I can, I can link, there's a couple different, I don't want to, unless they sponsor us, I don't want to mention their name. <laughs> let's, let's not get carried away here. Just put it in the shopping so I, cart. I love this idea out. of aromatherapy, like, is the next Yankee Candle brand going to be, like, alcohol swab? <laughs> oh, God. Just it's, feel like I would get punched in the face of a patient's like, I'm sick, and I'm like, here, put this bracelet on, and I'm going to waste some alcohol underneath <laughs> their nose. Let's see how this works. Like, I just, they would rightfully assault me. I yeah. Think. I think somebody and usually my understanding is that this PONV is pretty obvious right away if it's post-op day two and somebody's now nauseous I would look into your differential for nausea again have they had a bowel surgery have they had a GI surgery um I would I would blame the opioids uh are they constipated are they constipated are they having sort of gastric slowing um, or gastric dysmotility right. from the medications. The colies. <laughs> I would also, call, I, this is not, because <laughs> I stopped the colies. Uh, this is not an episode about post-op MI or MINS, which could be a whole hour in and of itself, but is nausea a manifestation of cardiac ischemia in the right patient? Um, so rather than just, you get the cross-cover page, they're nauseous, rather than just adding another antiemetic to the MAR, I would do some thinking about it. So let's, That's a great point. let's move, let's, let's kind of, I know we have limited time today and I definitely wanted to touch on post-op fever a little bit. So it turns out mm-hmm. that three days after her surgery, Miss Perry operative, uh, her nurse calls you. Yeah, what are we doing? And she's, uh, or we should say Miss Perry. So Miss Perry's nurse calls Perry. you and, uh, she's got a temperature of 101 Fahrenheit, uh, heart rate's 110. She's stable blood pressure. Oxygen sats are 94%. 
what what can you tell us about this? I know this dogma of the five W's. Oh yeah. Let tell us a little bit about the this dogma. Abby. So I think we all learned in med school, and there's actually a. I think it makes an appearance in a very very early Grey's Anatomy. Episode. Can we link to that in the show notes? Sure, sure. Why like, not? Meredith Grey like now. totally totally schools another intern about like what the differential for post op fever is. It's it's glorious. But the the wind water wound walking wonder drug and then there are corollaries to this that spell things with a dub, force w in them but um, the first one is wind is is atelectasis um and this is this is such a cool rabbit hole to go down in a nutshell atelectasis does not cause post-op fever thank you um I th- <laughs> there i've said it it's not even expert opinion it's like this is one of the, we need like a Tony Brew or an Adam Rodman like history of medicine tutorial on this. Actually, I take that back. There is a really good yeah. tweet. <laughs> sorry. Um, I think Tyler Larson, who's a hospitalist in yes. the, uh, the LAVA, fantastic tutorial on debunking this myth. So please link to this in the show notes. Uh, but walks to the evidence. Uh, there was, I think, a meta-analysis of eight papers that basically said like, no. Um, so we know that post-op fever is common. Post-op atelectasis is common, but the the curves actually are, are I think are inverse. Like in the days where post-op fever is decreasing, like atelectasis is increasing, or vice versa. Um, this was really cool. The animal studies are so confounded. So, to make a long story short, pyrogenic cytokines, which are released at the time of local tissue trauma. I mentioned that there's tissue trauma, there's a local inflammatory response. When you make an incision and then actually go carry out whatever you do in the surgical bed. So it's, um, it's the danger model of immunity. It's the, they're called DAMPS, uh, Damage Associated Molecular pa- uh, Patterns, I think. So you get a cytokine response, uh, IL-1, IL-6, TNF, just from having surgery and degree of temperature does not correlate. So they're like, oh, it's only 100.5. It's not infection. Or it's 103. It's got to be infection. That doesn't correlate either. So the animal models that showed, oh, atelectasis causes post-op fever. Do you know how they did them? They actually did surgery to ligate um, one of the left main stem bronchus and create atelectasis. In these in these animals, so they they did a surgery and they got fevers. So, um, so the old thinking like, oh, it's just atelectasis. Uh, cross that off your differential. There's also data that incentive spirometry does not decrease post-op fever. So it's pretty common. Um, I think the data ranges from 14 to 91 percent of patients will get fevers after surgery. As I mentioned, <laughs> That's a nice narrow spread. Very, very narrow spread. Um, <laughs> But the magnitude does not predict infection. I, there was one paper that showed that 21% or 20-something percent of patients would have a fever more than 39 degrees Celsius. So that's 102 point something. But I think, again, think about the time course. That if it's been more than five days post-op, um, I forget which article it was, but 90% had a, an identifiable infection. Um, and so I would, if it's more than two days surgery post-op, I would think beyond just the immediate post-op fever. Um, these are called early... Um, yeah, that was a paper by Garibaldi. Yeah, early post-op fever, EPF. Um, but water, uh, are they at risk of having a UTI? Did they have a catheter? Um, did they have GU tract surgery and are at risk of having a UTI based on the surgery site itself? Wound infection, 
should take several days. I think most people will see like four to five to seven days. Like it takes time for a wound infection to develop. But again, know the nature of your surgery. Was it a, you know, contaminated? Was it GI? Was it bowel resection? Was it in the setting of a, a bowel perf? So they had a dirt, you know, contaminated abdomen. Was it in the setting of abscess drainage? What are the unique factors for maybe an early wound infection versus a, a traditional timeline? Um, walking is DVTPE, but I don't think that that's really borne out well to be a cause of fever. And then wonder drug is, is drug reaction, drug fever, or transfusion reaction. Avi, just to comment a little bit on the timing in the first 48 hours, that's generally when I think most, most of the review articles I was looking at would blame it on this pyrogenic cytokines. Yeah. Beyond that point, you have to start thinking like you're saying, like, urinary tract infection, any sort of line infection? Is it a vent- yeah. ventilator-associated pneumonia or aspiration pneumonia, something like that? Yeah. And then a bunch of non-infectious causes. The one one that uh, malignant hyperthermia, if that occurs, I, I, don't, I can't say I've diagnosed that, but that would usually be within like hours. Yeah. Usually it would be like very quickly from the surgery. So that's not going to happen uh, it shouldn't. That should be pretty dramatic and and fast. I think there are some case reports of a delayed reaction, so like post-op day one-ish, mm-hmm. but in a patient who's sick, like a patient who looks toxic. Um, this, again, put on your internist, your hospitalist thinking cap, take your history, do an exam, build your differential, look at the, you know, look at the labs in addition to looking at the patient. Um, you know, are they hypotensive below their baseline? Are they tachycardic above their baseline? How do they look? Uh, look at their IV size. Could they have a little thrombophlebitis? Are they having urinary symptoms uh, in an orthopedic patient? Uh, it's rare, but you can, I think you can get fevers with fat emboli syndrome. Um, but those patients are usually sick and have other manifestations of that, of that complication. So Avi, I know we're we're sort of running up on time here. The, the the other thing I wanted to ask you about before we go is just the let's say that the well we did say Miss Perry she has tachycardia, heart rate's one ten. Let's take the fever out of the equation. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you talk people through the differential for uh, just post op tachycardia? I think that differential can be tough. I think the differential for tachycardia can be tough in and of itself uh, and outside the post op setting. Again, get your history. Look at look at the patient. Look at the trends. Um, ask them if they're symptomatic. Uh, you've got to diagnose the rate. So, just saying they're tachycardic. It, are they sinus tach? Are they in? This is a woman who has a history of AFib. Are they in AFib RVR? Um, are they having palpitations? Are they having chest pain? Are they having shortness of breath? Uh, for some reason, was their beta blocker left off the mar? Maybe they skipped a dose. Um, so, is the tachy the tachy is the tachycardia um, a herald of something more serious or, or what's the company it's keeping? Um, I would definitely make sure that volume status, either high, volume down or volume up is on your differential for tachycardia. I think you might very commonly see like, oh, they're tachycardic and their blood pressure is a little soft, so they need more fluids. But in somebody with the right cardiac substrate, that could actually be a sign that they're volume up. Um, or we know that post-op ischemia can be very challenging to diagnose and frequently presents atypically. Could this be a manifestation uh, that they are manifesting post-op cardiac ischemia? Um, I think some of the things that are on our differential in the, in the primary care or the outpatient setting too 
you need to take with a grain of salt. So pain control, you know, are they tachycardic because they're in pain? Well, if they're sitting there comfortable and they're weaning down on their narcotics, I would not anchor on pain being the cause. Um, you know, if somebody came into me and was tachycardic at baseline, I would wonder about their thyroid function. I think that would be uncommon, rare to present in the post-op setting like that. Um, but there are rare case reports of, of unstable thyroid disease being unmasked. Could, could there be other drivers of inflammation or an early SIRS response? Um, again, like we are internists. Yeah. Think about what your normal, uh, your, could they have had a PE? Um, just having the post-op state gets you a decent number of points on both the Wells DVT calculator and the Wells PE calculator. Uh, takes several days to manifest, but somebody who is tachycardic, maybe short of breath, or their stats are not at their baseline. Um, I have a kid stomping above me right now. Um, <laughs> make sure that you have really like high pre, higher pretest probability complications on your differential. Yeah. I think withdrawal is the other common one that we, we would see in the hospital. And and you mentioned uh, venous thromboembolism. We we didn't really talk about it when we were going through the routine post-op care. Um, this probably will be the last question we have time for. What? How do you decide which uh, post-op like preventive medicine to give the patient, you know, after surgery? Um, it depends on what type of surgery they had. Uh, there's a lot of data in the orthopedic literature about the unique risks for DVT or VTE after especially hip and knee surgery. And that I would definitely say, make a conversation with your surgeon. I've, there may be local practice patterns. There may be other patient risk factors that tip the balance from full-dose aspirin to uh, DOAC. I mean, we're really not doing warfarin or, or low-molecular weight heparin at this point. Um, depending on the other, where the other surgical bed is, if there's a preference for heparin versus low-molecular weight heparin, I would make sure that you've talked to the surgeon about their comfort level with when even prophylactic doses are initiated. I think the onus on doing this with... Um, you know, like an extra, like a vascular surgery versus uh, something neurosurgical or intracranial or spinal shifts the balance of the bleeding risk. I will also say that uh, ambulation is really good for what ails you. Um, I can't stress this enough that ambulation is really showing decreased risk of so many post-op complications, uh, delirium, pulmonary complications, deconditioning, ability to return to independent living. So even if the surgeons are, feel comfortable with the patient getting uh, pharmacologic prophylaxis, unless they are non-weight-bearing, like get them up and moving. Um, the other thing I wanted to add for tachycardia is a very cool, I don't know if any of you have heard the urban legend that urinary retention can cause delirium. No, I've heard it can cause uh, acute hypertension, like severe hypertension. Yeah, so there's actually something, it's one of like the best kept secrets in geriatrics, um, but I've seen patients who are really acutely delirious, they're hypertensive, they're tachycardic, you can't figure out what's going on, and then somebody does a bladder scan and they have a liter of urine in their bladder. It's actually called cystocerebral syndrome. It shows up in the literature. No. That, yeah. No. no, look, Google it. <laughs> I <won't>. um, <laughs> There's this like massive sympathetic response to like to bladder distension. Um, so I would have, I would have, you know, somebody's like, well, I'm having some trouble urinating before you diagnose the, the not actual post-op UTI as a cause of their tachycardia. 
And delirium, I would actually see how much urine they're retaining. Uh, we also talked about withdrawal syndrome. So if somebody's tachycardic, maybe they're hypertensive, maybe they're delirious. I would think about alcohol withdrawal, marijuana withdrawal as well. All right. So I think we're going to have to end with this fantastic pearl about uh, checking for urinary retention as a potential cause of delirium. Uh, so Avi, any any final take-home point? Uh, probably have time for one ma- major take-home point that you wanted to give before we let you go. Um, I think my major take-home point is just a very big umbrella. Make it collaborative. Um, approach this with, with humility and in the spirit of collaboration in the interest of patient care, rather than getting that pit in your stomach and sense of dread that, that you're, you're being asked to, to do something for somebody else. All right. Thank you. Uh, we'll let you get back to the kids, jigsaw puzzles, and whatever else you got going up there in the Pacific Northwest. Thank you so much for all it your time. It was good to see everyone. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. I missed window. Get your show notes <laughs> to thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. You had one job to get our weekly notes <laughs> in your inbox. Great timing. Uh, miss you, Stuart. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. Uh, so we want your feedback. Please rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Hannah R. Abrams and Avi's Hall O'Glasser, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Hannah R. Abrams. And we would be remiss in not thanking the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music, as well as to Claire Morgan of notterly.com for uh, editing this nonsense. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.